Hey guys, Martin King again with Skilled Trade Rescue. This is the uh, episode from our series that we're doing. We're talking to real life skilled trades folks uh, all over the United States that I think have unique stories to tell. And the goal of this particular series is to get the word out about skilled trades and let people know that it's not just the consolation prize. It's it's not just the type of thing you get into if if uh, everything else doesn't work out. Skilled <laughs> trades are the real deal. And uh, we're finally getting a little bit of critical mass, if you will, about people wakening up to uh, skilled trades as a viable option if you're not um, not college material, or maybe you did college and the types of things that you're getting into aren't of interest to you. So we're going to talk about that. So today I have an opportunity to sit down with Ernie Loomis. He's out of the Sacramento, California area, and uh, he's got uh, a good story, um, and I want you guys to hear it. And uh, at the end of this recording, I'm going to see if I can talk Ernie into providing an email address to where you can email your questions into him if, uh, if if he has time to do that. So Ernie, welcome to the show. And uh, how are you today, kind sir? I'm doing pretty good. You know, I've uh, <laughs> I've taken on COVID twice and got it out of there with no, uh, no stripes. <laughs> All right, looking good, man. Fine. I'm glad you, yeah, last time we tried setting this up, your voice wasn't working. <laughs> yeah, that's the funny thing about uh, well, my my bouts with COVID has been kind of interesting. It's more turned into like a uh, sinus infection. So that's that's been my little key key in like uh, so I it, the last time we were supposed to interview, uh, I was I had a, a head cold and I'm like, man, what is going on here? So I I had to take a COVID test to go to the doctor's office and I I'm like going, oh, oh what? How did I get positive? And that, the story was I was go I actually went to one of my daughter's graduations for college and and I'm like how in the world we you know we had to wear masks and all this other stuff and I'm like how in the world did I get COVID out of all this area because yeah. I've had all the shots, all the boosters for the requirement because I work for a defense contractor. And I'm like, that is the goofiest thing in the world. Nobody else in my party, nobody else in my family, nobody else in the extended family or friends oh. of my daughter's friends got sick. So yeah. It's a it's a head scratcher, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. This whole thing has been. I'm I'm the good news is I think we're finally on the on the downside of this whole thing. You know, it's yeah. uh yeah. The, the the COVID that's going around right now, I, I think is what they're saying is COVID light. You know, it's not like the one that's mm -hmm. killing people. It's just if you feel terrible for for a week or two, but you know, this one is uh is not as deadly, if you will, as is the original one. Hey, so yeah. Let's tell your story. So uh, you, you're a military guy. So uh, you're Navy, I guess, originally. Yeah. Yeah. Originally, I started out in the Navy, uh, nuclear power program. Uh, I did eight years on nuclear submarines. I I uh, went through back when I went through, it was about a two year program. So they initially teach you or at the time I went through, they they, they had three different trades that they taught you in it was an electrical trade or the mechanical trade or electronics trade. Well, and the Navy's infinite wisdom. They said, "Hey, you're going to be a mechanic." So I'm like, "Okay, whatever." Uh, so you get, yeah, they give you about uh, six months of mechanical training. That was a what they call an MM, and that was all done at Great Lakes, the boot camp, and the school, and the the extra schooling. And then when you get done with that, then at the time when I was in, they sent you down to Orlando, Florida, to the to finish off all the nuclear power classroom phase. And then the third phase of that is they send you to what they call a prototype. Mm -hmm. At the time I was in, 
they had three different locations. One was in uh, New York. Uh, one was in, uh, he's not getting recall anymore. New York, Connecticut, I think, and in Idaho. I got my choice to go back to Idaho where I, where I grew up and, and finish out my third phase in, in Idaho. All those sites are gone now. They've been decommissioned and, and scuttled. And now they have, I think, just uh, one place, I think, is in South Carolina. But I, I'm not even sure of that anymore. I don't really follow the training sites. Yeah. So, yeah, they, they've yeah, changed there, all around. There's something about you submariners, man. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I retired for a couple of years. And then recently I decided to take a contract job at one of the big electronics companies. And I work in the facilities engineering group, right? And I bet you uh, that on my shift, there's five guys, and I'd say three of them are uh, ex-submariners working on. Oh, you know, really? Yeah. There's, some, there's something about. And the other day, I had my motorcycle worked on, um, and got to talking to the guy because that's what I do, and and uh, he's a submariner too. It's like it's like all of a sudden you, you guys are just in my life and. It seems like a lot of you guys gravitate towards uh, towards you know working with your hands and doing stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one thing about submariners is we don't just know one job; we know a lot of jobs. That's that's kind of the requirement, uh, especially in the submariner trade. You kind of know uh, your primary job, which, like for me, was machinist mate. But then you have a secondary job, which is maybe the electricians. You're always helping out the electricians all the time. That's what we did. Yeah. Uh, and of course, your nuclear powertrain, which is a your primary MOS, so to speak, right? But that hardly ever really comes into play except you're always constantly being trained up with the Navy, what they require you to know all the time. Yeah. And then for me, when I was in, in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, they were uh, had just signed the SALT II agreements. And so they were phasing out a lot of the old missile boats. They were phasing out a lot of the first generation fast attacks. So we were decommissioning a lot of submarines. So I was I was one of the lucky guys that got to decommission three submarines in a in a you know a five year career, and then well, below ninety three, ninety four, they what happens is uh, you know the, the Soviet Union collapses. So yeah, there there was a big downturn, right? And I decided to get out of the Navy and uh, uh, start my civilian career, so to speak. So then I get into the industrial refrigeration. That's that's really how I got in into HVAC, so to speak, right? I I, about a, two years prior to me leaving the Navy, I was looking around, hey, can I get into nuclear power? Uh, nope, because of Three Mile Island. Yeah. <laughs> we stopped building nuclear power plants. So I'm right. like, what else can I do? So I started getting into air conditioning on the boat and chillers and pumps and all the associated equipment. And I was like, all right, I could do this. So I got into so, industrial so, refrigeration. So once you got out, what was your first job when you got out? In, was it in refrigeration? Yeah, it was in refrigeration. I was I was actually very fortunate because I was kind of floating for about a year. I was just doing, being a janitor at a <laughs> at a retail state place, and a, a an older gentleman saw my resume at a potato processing plant there in Southeast Idaho, and he he calls me up. He says, "Hey, I, I need a guy like you on my on my shift." I'm like, "Really?" He's like, "And we, we the interview was probably an hour long, and the interview." was not to my skill set because he was an ex Navy guy. It, yeah, so he, his whole thing was, you know, how many rads did I get while we were blowing on, blowing up a bombs in the, in the bikini atolls.
I'm like, well, if you're on top of the boat, you know, on the foredeck or the forecastle or the aft end on the bow or on the stern, you'd be dead right now. <laughs> and he was, yeah. he's looking at me like, really? I'm like, yeah, you don't have a watch of shielding there, you know. If you're inside below the waterline, you probably saved yourself. Well, he was an engineer. So he was like, whew, he's like wiping his head. He's like, because he was in his 50s, right? So it was, it was a, it was the weirdest interview I've probably ever done about my skill set. So he was so worried about the radiation count that he could have got. I'm like, I said, if you really had radiation pointing, you'd be dead by now. It was like, that was his whole thing. So that's how so I got he, into so he, the, got, the, he got the job. And then yep. uh, and what were you doing for, uh, for your first job in refrigeration? We, we, we were tearing down open drive compressors. That's what we were doing. We were converting our R12 and our R22 systems over to uh what were we getting into because r12 had already been outlawed by that would have been 134a you know it's hard to he he had some he was going from r22 to r502 or not 502 r404 maybe 404 yeah but he had some interesting he was a very smart guy for having not having an engineering degree right and he he had all these things set up and we would he, he had us on a predictive maintenance schedule, too. So every compressor, we had 45 compressors just on one refrigeration line for frozen potato product. And he had every compressor on a predictive maintenance schedule, right? So as soon as it hit, I think it was 500 hours or 1,000 hours of operation. Because we ran 24-7. Over, yeah. Break it down, overhaul it, bring it into yeah. the shop. Break it down, overhaul it, put new rings, new pistons in if it needed new pistons. Hone the cylinders, the whole nine yards, right? And then put it back in, shaft alignment, the whole line, start it back up and, you know, take the other. And these things sat in pairs all the way down this line. So I learned a lot in, in the year and a half that I was, a year and a half, maybe two years I was at working at the site. And then one day he comes up to me. And he's like, after we had just installed a brand new ammonia refrigeration line, he says, you need to go someplace else because you'll never advance any further in this company than graveyard. And I looked at him funny, like, what do you mean? He says, these guys are lifers here. They don't ever move. They don't ever go anywhere else. The only way you're going to go to a swing shift is if one of these guys dies. And I'm like, well, that's not good. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I found a job in, in, you know, 45 minutes closer to where I live in a light commercial residential. I did that right. for four years. Okay. Three or four years. So it, it was, I've, my career has never really been like just one spot. I right. learned the refrigeration trade hands-on employers sending me to schools and learning the different sides of the trade and all right. of it was non-union until i got to sacramento and i went union yeah have you ever had a problem finding a job in refrigeration air conditioning no no when i moved back to california i got my job over the phone interview yeah. over the phone and got my job over the phone that's how easy it was it, it's yeah. it, they're always hurting for good mechanics always my job I got here when I came back to Sacramento in 2000 was we need a guy just like you. What are you willing to take to get you to move? Yeah. I negotiated my wage and everything and, you know, sold all my unnecessary stuff in Idaho, drove back to California to try to save a marriage. And, well, I didn't save the marriage, but I had a great career. And then a friend of mine sponsored me to get in the union and I tripled my wage and got a lot better benefits package and everything in all process. Yeah. So. So, um, and so nowadays, are you're you're doing commercial primarily now, or are you still doing any residential? 
I only do residential for friends. I'm on the side for that kind of stuff. Okay. And, I don't, and I really don't do it as a necessary thing. I just help friends out. I do yeah. all commercial and I'm in the facility engineering side of it now, like what you do for a consultant. I yeah. actually do it for real. Like I've been doing that for, oh, I see, since 2006, 2005, 2006. So, okay. and I enjoy it because it's steady work, but it also challenges you, especially especially with the energy optimization that California has really been pushing for. Right. right? <clears throat> like the site that I just went to here in Sacramento uh, four years ago, all our equipment was 40 years old. All of it. Everything. I walked into the site and they're interviewing me. And the guy says, well, we got these problems with our chillers. We got these problems with our rooftop equipment. We have these problems with our controls. And I'm, I said, well, this is what your problem is with your rooftop equipment. And I start detailing. He's like, the guy's looking at me like, and this is the facilities manager who's supposed to have 25 years experience, right? He's like, right. how do you know that without even going to the roof and looking at it? Because I, I do this for a living. This is I'm the SME, right? I do this wherever I go. I know this is like, you know, the what they call a dog whisperer, a horse whisperer. I'm like the machine whisperer, right? This is what I do, right? I said, can you show me the chiller plant? Because it was on the first floor. I didn't have to get a clearance to go in there. I walk into these chillers and I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's the same stuff I had on the submarine. And he's like, really? Yeah. Like, the same exact chillers. They're spread out a little bit more, but it's the same equipment. Right. Electromechanical controls, right? All, <laughs> but then, you know, I had the job right there on the spot. I so, had to negotiate my wage. Yeah, so what's the what's the day in the life for, for Ernie? So you, right now you're in facilities. So you mentioned you're working for like a military contractor or something like that. And in facilities so, so you're an outside company that's augmenting uh or or uh doing work within a facility uh that the in-house people aren't doing you're you're helping them out right well we took all, so when the military started downsizing in the 90s and the early 2000s right they they abandoned a lot of these military sites right and right. either the state or the county or cities took over these old military sites, but left a lot of old equipment behind. Right, right. Then, then they started leasing these sites out. And I don't know if they get federal money or state money to update them to be energy efficient. So we, I actually work for a defense contractor that's leasing this small section of the site. And we, because we're a federal contractor, we have gotten a certain amount, dollar amount for capital to update everything energy efficiency wise. Right. So in the last two years, three years, because COVID messed us up, probably the last three years, we've I've probably spent two and a half, three million dollars in energy upgrades. Hey, guys, I have an exciting announcement. We just recently made some updates to our three most popular online courses at ProcessChillerAcademy.com. If you're a technician that's looking to improve your skills a little bit, maybe get some specialized training to be of more value to your customers and your employer, or if you are an employer, a contractor that is looking to augment your existing in-house training with online training that can be accessible from any device, this is a really great opportunity. Just go to ProcessChillerAcademy.com. Just scroll down the homepage and you will see the course area. 
If you go into the course page, you will see that we are currently for a limited time, we have a promo code of Chiller Pro that will save you 25% on any one of these courses. So I hope you check it out and I'm looking forward to seeing you in class. Yeah, all our chiller systems have been updated. All our cooling towers, all our pumps. And I basically sit down with a mechanical engineer like, hey, I know these things are way oversized. I know these chillers are way oversized. I know based upon the prints and our actual person load and our heat load and our operational, because we don't operate 24-7 anymore, that we don't need to have this, this, and this, and our control system's outdated, so we need to do this, this, and this. It's kind of like a retro commissioning when we come into the building. Like, yeah. It's been 20 years. We need to do this, this, and this now and kind of go through a new sequence of ops and, and reprogram everything, right? So, so that's what me, I've been doing. <laughs> let me guess. So you, you, you're making these statements to these engineers. They go back to the drawing board and they spend six months, run all the numbers and all the models and all that kind of stuff and basically come back to the same place where you were in 10 minutes. Yep. Needs to be up. Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Our, our, our energy provider, who is uh, SMUD, which is Sacramento Municipal yeah. Utility District, Verif they've done that with me. They've, they've, they basically come back and say, yep, you're right. <laughs> and, yeah. and our engineers are like, how does he know that stuff like, like without actually crunching numbers? And I'm like, yeah. it's, it's, it's just basically experience. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that a lot of people don't know, and I'm speaking to the young folks out there that may be considering skilled trades is that, you know, everybody thinks that most of the energy that we produce, the electricity that we produce goes to residential homes and, and things like that. Well, the reality of it is most of the energy that we produce uh, when I, I'm mainly electrical energy in the electrical, United States, yeah. goes to power uh, commercial and industrial buildings that that's where yep. most of that energy goes to. So what Ernie's talking about guys is there's a big push. Some states are more aggressive than others. The federal government, depending on who who's in power, uh, is is pressing on renewables and all this kind of stuff. And the whole idea is they want to create more efficiency. So what Ernie's talking about is he's got some old pumps, old chillers, old boilers, old things that when they were originally manufactured, they were built when energy was relatively cheap. And yep. um, now energy's um, more expensive and it's in vogue now to cut down carbon footprint, especially in California. And oh that's yeah. That's why you're so busy, right, Ernie? Yeah. Yep. Oh, so here's my example. One of my examples I'll show. Uh, I had a 400 ton cooling tower. That means it can get discharged or release 400 tons of energy to cool water for the cooling, for the two chillers that we had in, in one of the buildings. Right now, our actual heat load in the building was more like 200 to 250 tons if it was fully, fully loaded with a 105 degree day outside running at max capacity, right? So now this is from my experience, adding up all the numbers, adding up all our occupied space, adding up the number of people that are in that space in this one building, right? And then actually physically observing the chillers running at 105 degree days. Like what, what are my temperature differentials across the condenser, temperature differentials across the chiller, taking these engineering numbers that are readily available on the internet, right? And the design specifications of the chillers when they were first installed, right? I have this, I still have all that information, right? So I'm like, 
we're way oversized. This is crazy. And I start and I present this stuff to my energy managers in Northrop Grumman saying, when are we slated for in Northrop Grumman, who's the defense contractor I work for, they have what they call a green NG portion of the corporate side of the business, right? So they're going, and we have different business uses, but they go like, hey, wait a second. If we can slash a certain amount of energy, which is relatable to carbon footprint, we can get you some money for upgrading those chillers, upgrading those cooling towers. So my cooling tower at the time was a forced draft cooling tower, which means I have to turn on a fan a 40 horsepower fan to get air to draw across the cooling tower, right? Well, nowadays they have these cooling towers that literally you don't have to turn the fan on. It's natural draft to start a cooling process, right? right? So, and if you do have to turn on a fan, it's got a VFD or variable speed drive or variable frequency drive that actually starts the fan slowly to get the process to go, right? So I'm like going, guys, we could just, if we change out this cooling tower, we could save this much kilowatts hours a year. And they're like, Yep. <laughs> yeah, and that's really simple math. That's not that hard of math to do. Exactly, right? So my first project was the first chiller plant, right? And I'm telling them just about the cooling tower and the chillers. They come back and says, what if we do all the pumps, all the chillers, all the cooling towers in this year? Can we get it done in one year? I'm like, I don't know if we can do it in one year, but I know we can do it in like a year and a half. You give me the money and the time, I can get it done in, in this this time frame in the winter. They're like, Let's go for it. How much money do we need? <laughs> and I'm like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> Everybody's telling me it can't be done. I'm, I'm like, you're, and Green NG is the one that's out. We need to get this done. We need to reduce our, our carbon footprint. Right. Yeah. No, no one ever came back. So it's kind of one of these days where my bosses at the local level didn't think it could get done. I present this to my bosses. My bosses go to Green NG and on Green NG says, yes, we have this much money in the capital pot. We could go and do that for you guys. Yeah. So, uh, what what's the give me a give me a career success, Ernie's what, maybe a situation that like pops up in your mind, like you know, wow, I love this, I love this 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 business that I'm in. Uh, you got a like you got a story about something that just like just just put you in awe about the opportunity to work in 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 what you're doing. Well, like this one. So we got these cooling towers changed out. We got these chillers changed out. Okay. Uh, one of them was I was in. A, I was before this company. I was working for a private company that was, uh, I'd say, a medium-sized company, about a hundred employees, right? And they buy up small commercial properties, which is just office buildings, mm-hmm. no industrial, no production. Like I work in that what they consider industrial production. We have people in offices, but we also produce a small amount of items for Northrop Grumman and the military. So we have what they call mixed use. This, where I worked before, was just straight office building. We had done a renovation on the second floor, second or third floor, and we had some northeast exposure to the sun with no shade. Mm. So we get done with this office. We get everything built out per the design spec of the engineering and architectural team. People move in, and we have a hot zone and i'm talking not just like it's warm when it gets you know first thing in the morning like seven o'clock eight o'clock in the morning and you got to understand when we're running air conditioning and they are air conditioning on a commercial office building might be a chill water system most likely it's a what they call a dx system a direct expansion where you have a big air conditioning unit that sits on the roof that just pushes air around 
those units will not normally come on in refrigeration mode until they are, uh, you know, greater than 60 degrees outside. So in the Bay Area, usually that doesn't happen until, and that's where I was working in the Bay Area, usually doesn't happen until around 11 o'clock in the morning. Usually you're using outside air for energy efficiency purposes. Right. So we were having a very difficult time trying to cool. It was probably a 200 square foot area of the building, the northeast corner. And we're scratching our heads going, what in the world do we do, right? So I'm talking to an actual mechanical engineer. He comes up from Sacramento because his company's from Sacramento that had done the mechanical layout and the air conditioning loadout and, and everything, right? And we would have to freeze the whole floor out, you know, subcool the whole floor to try to keep this 200 square foot area at 75 degrees. Yeah. Well, that's unacceptable for the rest of the people on the floor because there's like 100 people on this floor, right? So we're sitting there, we're taking readings on the glass, single plane glass because the building was built in the 80s. The glass is tinted, right? And we're thinking about putting uh, a mylar film or chrome film or something on the inside and increasing the airflow of the ductwork that's in there. And the, the exception of this floor or this, yeah, this floor and this build out was we had exposed ceilings. So you can see all the ductwork, you can see the lighting, the cabling, everything, right? Yeah. So all the heat still, now all the heat's getting pushed to the, to the ceiling, but also getting mixed. The air is getting mixed. So it's not, it's not getting encapsulated in a return air like it should be. It's getting mixed up. The air is all getting mixed up. So you're having a difficult time really having a temperature control in the zone. Well, the engineer and I are scratching our heads for like a week. We're taking, we're taking temperature readings. We're taking temperature recordings. We're watching the zone get hot from like 6 a.m to 9 a.m. and it just cools right off. And we start realizing this is a solar load on that portion of the building. That's all it is. It doesn't matter what we try to do to the machinery. We're wasting a lot of energy. He starts, the mechanical engineer, starts digging in to when the building was built, who built the building, the manufacturer of the glass. Mm. And he finds out that there was a a manufacturing deficiency with the type of glass that was built in the mid eighties. Even the tinted glass that was built back then that allowed a bunch of UV radiation to come through and infiltrate the space. And I'm like, lo and behold, that must be our issue. So we start, we take a uh, infrared camera, and we start recording what's happening in these spaces. And in fact, we had a couple of offices in that area too that could, that could be closed off that, so no one could watch it and mess with it. And we could see this space just gain loads of infrared heat, right. visible to the eye, right? So we're like, well, how do we fix this? Well, he and I start researching not mylar film, but actual uh the stuff they put on, they used to put on the space shuttle, uh, uh, the that tile. I forgot the name of the tile now. It's like a, a corningware, right? A corningware tile. Yeah. Well, they started making, they started making that in a film, right, okay. for window coating. That instead of putting it on the inside, because if you overload the heat that the window glass starts getting, you could actually shatter the glass. Right. You put it on the exterior of the glass that actually prevents that infrared from coming in. So we were looking at twenty, thirty thousand dollars of reducting, pushing, you know, 
excess energy down the ductwork for the machines to run extra hard. Him and I come up with this idea of, hey, why don't we just go get some glazers, put this uh, Corningware style of film on these windows that are in this exposure. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was like $2,500 worth of work. Mm. Nobody wants to approve it. I go, I go talk to my property manager and she's an out of the box kind of thinker. She's not part of the company inside yeah. structure. She had just gotten hired like six months prior. Her and I sit down. I said, is it in your budget? Can we, you know, can we rob Peter to pay Paul? Is there anything in your carpeting budget? Can we do this? She comes up with the money and gets it done. Yeah. All of a sudden, the tenant's like super duper happy. Right. For $2,500, we fix a problem. Yeah, that had to come good. <laughs> oh, yeah. That was probably the, I was like, of all the things in the world, and only a mechanical engineer and a guy with a nuclear power background would understand infrared right. loading inside of a building, right? Right. right. Nobody, nobody else would believe us. None of the, not that the company I was working for, they, they, no, 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 you can't do that. That's, there's no way that's happening. We you had know, what's, in, what's this, interesting, you know, it, it all has a lot to do with where the money falls on the budget, I find, mm-hmm. you know, yep. it's the color uh, of the money. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. So the, you know, the facility has, you know, X amount of dollars on the, on the mechanical repair budget, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. That may have been the, 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 the pond that, was drawing it, the money was being drawn out to do all this duct work, you know, duct work stuff. Yep. And the, 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 the film that you put on there to ultimately solve the problem didn't fit on any of the budgets. Right. Exactly. And, yeah. And the way budgeting works is uh, pe- people up, up the food chain, they know that unless that money gets spent, the first thing the bean counters do is they say, uh, well, you know, this facility didn't burn up their entire budget, so they must not need it. So next year we're going to lower it. Right. Yeah. And nobody yeah. wants their budget lowered. <laughs> yeah. Well, what was nice about working with the facility, the the project manager slash facility manager for that site was yeah. that she did, she wanted the customer happy. Right? right. That was her job. That's what she was looking at. She didn't care about the bean counters. She was getting, you know, they, it was a brand new customer, a brand new tenant that had moved in. And yeah. she wanted them there long term because they were a mortgage company. And if they stay there long term, that floor is going to stay completely occupied for the next 10 years. Right. right. They don't like to move around. So in her mind, she's looking at, hey, rent rolls. Right. Rent rolls. That's what's going to yeah. be paying the rent for this building. Yeah. These guys are long term tenants. It was a nice build out. And you're worried about twenty five hundred dollars. Come yeah. on. You know? yeah. I'll, I'll take it out of my I'll take it out of my profit margin. <laughs> you know? Sometimes you just got to shake your head. You know, it, it's. What's really interesting is I ran my own companies for years and years. So I was the guy. Yeah, I, I was the decision maker. And I, I would always, I was that property manager type guy as an owner of an HVAC company is I've always wanted to take care of my customer. And now doing this contract gig, I'm just a, I'm a very, very small cog in a very big wheel. And I, I have oh, yeah. zero, yep. right? So some of the times I, you know, I, I go through and ask the senior techs because some of these guys have been there 25, 30 years. I'm like, what? Why do you do it this way? This makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's. And and they're yep. like, we've done it that way for 15 or 20 years, and you know that's just the way it is, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
Hey, so what are some of the biggest challenges that we're faced with right now in the, in the skilled trade industry? Um, maybe it, you know, specific to HVAC refrigeration. What are some of the big industry challenges that you see coming coming in or already in or what? Well, I think the last uh, the last five years I've actually really seen it, or the last ten years uh, is everybody's being told go to school get a degree. Everybody's being told go to school get a degree. And what I'm seeing is there's a lot of people, guys and gals, that are not happy with their degree, and they end up getting a job not even close to the degree that they got their job in, right? And they're completely dissatisfied. Now, now we've got you know we've done COVID. Everybody went to remote work, quote unquote, remote work, quote unquote. And now everybody thinks, oh, I can work from home. I don't have to interact with anybody. Right. And they forget that there's got to be people that have to go fix all the stuff that breaks. And and it's the same mantra. Go, go get your degree. Go get your degree. You can work from home. And you're like, who fixes your computer? Who runs the IT cables to make the computer work so you can have remote work? Right. And the biggest failure of all of this is you still have to do an interface with somebody. You still have to shake your hand. You still have to go in and see them. You still have to go, you know, uh, and deal with a physical problem at a physical place when things are breaking. And in the skilled trades part of this is guess what? There are plumbers, there's electricians, there's HVAC guys, there are glazers, there are construction guys. Everybody's still building structures for all these people to go someplace to have a meeting remotely, whether it's your house, whether it's a conference room, whether it's an office building, whatever is going on, these places still exist. And like on the skilled trades part, whether you're an electrician or carpenter or a sheetrock player or whatever it might be, there's so many less of us that are good at what we do. We're getting paid crazy dollars amount of money to come in there and go do the job and then the guys that are retiring now like the guys i knew when i came in are gone and they're they're retiring and just disappearing they're not even they're not even sticking around to consult they're not even sticking around to two three days a week and help out they're not even consulting they're just dropping off the map which is in one way a good way but Another way is really bad because years of institutional knowledge is going away. Mm-hmm. The tricks of the trade are going away. The the pass down knowledge is going away. So yeah. what happens? You have this big gap of not enough people coming in to replace those people. And then the guys who came in like I did, I got into it in the 80s and I'm going to be you know, probably retiring in the late 60s, well, late 60s in 10, 15 years. But I still like being in it, right? Yeah. So what's going to happen, right? Yeah, there's yeah. going to be an incredible amount of pressure to stay in because yeah. there's not enough people behind me to keep coming, keep going into it. Yeah. So I'm always, I'm always talking to people. Hey, how would you like to do this job that I'm doing right now? And you don't have to be a hardcore running around with a belt on your hip all the time. You could be just an SME saying, "Oh no, you need to turn this. You need to operate that. You need to go do this. You need to go look at the plans. You need to get this information, whatever it is, to help." understand this job isn't just about turning wrenches yeah this job requires you to use your brain because computers are involved now as yeah. much or even more now and there's some like i was telling my daughter gigo it's garbage in garbage out there's a lot of people programming these machines that don't understand how the machines 
they're supposed to work. Yeah. You know, know, what's interesting. I was having a, uh, I did a little talk for a a homeschooling uh, group about skilled trades a while back. And, and uh, one of the examples I made of, you know, that skilled trades, how it impacts all of our lives is uh, a real simple analogy. So, you know, if you ask a typical, you know, teenager, high school grad, whatever, um, what actually happens when you do a Google search? What happens? So they yeah. go to their phone and they put in, uh, I, you know, I want to earn, I want to learn about Ernie Loomis on LinkedIn, whatever, right? So they go in mm-hmm. there and they do a search on Google and it comes up with LinkedIn, you know, all kinds of links on stuff. Well, the other end of that search, that that stuff you're putting into your mobile machine goes into a data center somewhere, which could be literally yep. anywhere. Anywhere, yep. Yep. So each search generates a little bit of computing power to do that. And computing power generates heat. And yep. heat, if it builds up too much and it's not removed from those servers, server fails. So you put in your search you don't get the results because the server's not running. And and yep. so there needs to be a guy like you or a guy like me or somebody that knows how to fix the chiller, usually, um, yep. that, that keeps that, that server cool. Uh, somebody needs to know how to fix that thing because if it goes out, no more Google. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly, right? No more Google. And yeah. I, mean, I, I actually worked at a site like that for two years. It's like, you know, it was a, it was a, for a big bank and, you know, yeah, they redundancy, uh, redundancy, redundancy, right? Well, what happens when the heat builds up? Like, you know, the cooling towers go down or the generator goes offline or main power goes online and the generators go offline. All you're doing is drop on your own batteries. Where's the backup site? Right? Yeah. And sometimes there's a lag before the backup site comes online. Yeah. And we saw stuff like that at the main data site where things catastrophically failed, right? And People can't pull their money out of the bank. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's people don't think about that, that there are people on those sites that are there 24 seven. It's shift work. Yeah. And that's the work you are sitting there doing repair work or like you, you go to your favorite site and you click on it and it comes up. Oh, temporarily offline due to routine maintenance. Well, guess what? I know exactly what they're doing because I used to do that, like routine maintenance. Yep, everybody's yeah. offline because we got to flush the cooling system. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Hey, so how many years total have you been in the in the skill trades now, Ernie? Uh, it's about thirty, about thirty years total. Okay, on the civilian side of it, not including the yeah. Navy. So I want to ask you a question. I already know what the answer is going to be, but. Have you ever known in all the contacts that you've generated in the skilled trades area over your 30 years plus, have you ever heard of an HVAC refrigeration technician job being outsourced to another country? No. <laughs> I knew, no, I knew that was, I knew that was <laughs> um, So that, that's another point that I've been really drilled at home because, you know, these, these uh, college grads, College students, you know, they they get a computer science degree or they get a marketing degree or they get a communications degree or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not only strapped with the debt, there's a lot of pressure. They have to work to eventually pay off that that debt. Yep. And, um, you know, 
college debt is not bankruptable, so you will pay it back one way or the other. No, nope, uh, the the challenge is is that there's other nation states, India, Vietnam, uh, China, especially. You know their their education system is very um, is is socialized, so the governments are paying for a lot of those education uh, degrees mm-hmm. in in those countries. Yeah. So what what happens? So you get a, a computer science degree. And you go to work for Google or you go to work for, you know, any high tech company. And for whatever reason, the, that high tech company is having some financial challenges, uh, which happens. You know, it's a cyclical thing. First thing they're going to do is try to outsource all that stuff. You know, they're paying you $125,000 a year. They can get the same work done over in India or Pakistan or wherever for half the price. What do you think they're going to do? Oh, yeah. I have a friend that's going through that right now. They just yeah. outsourced his. Well, they did, it's like a. Well, they outsourced his job. He had to bid on it to get his job back. So he's working for a subcontractor, right? That subcontractor, for whatever reason, is not performing to the standards that were required. So they brought in another company to meet the standards that was required. He's having to bid on his job again, right? to keep his job. And he just found out he's possibly going to be traveling overseas because his job requirements have increased in order to keep his salary. Yeah. Like what? (laughs) I'm glad I don't go computers for a living. (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. So uh, I want to talk to you about wages. So we we started before I hit record, we we started talking about that a little bit. Um, Oh yeah. uh, So your union, so Maybe you've been doing this so long. It sounds like you were non-union for a while. Where are we at today in 2022? So you get a you get a a, a youngster. They're just getting started. Smart man or woman. Uh, they they go in as an, an apprentice. Uh-huh. Union union. What's a what's a starting wage in your market out there in California? I know it's going to be a little higher than the rest of the nation, but what yeah? What, what are we looking at? Roughly. Uh, if they were in the San Francisco, uh, I'll start with the highest one that I know of is San Francisco with Bay Area. They, uh, their journeymen are right around $75 an hour. Turned out just a plain old journeyman mechanic, right? Uh, and that's five years of apprenticeship, right? Right out of school, out of their five-year apprenticeship there at $75 an hour. That's what their start, take they starting them at right out of. They, they start them at, once you get accepted into the school, you're started at 55% of journeyman wage. Oh, wow. So yeah, exactly. Now, you got to remember the Bay Area is pretty expensive to live in. So that's part of the reason yeah, it's so yeah, high. Yeah. So in the Sacramento region, their wage is right at right around, it's like 58.98 or 58.90 or 85 an hour, right? Today, in July 1st, they'll get a raise of, uh, I think, 250 an hour. So they'll be right around 60. That's journeyman. For journeyman wage in Sacramento region. Okay. And that's also five-year apprenticeship. Five-year apprenticeship, yep. And then, of course, that'll be 55% starting out, right, as a as a first-year apprentice. Wow. So, you know, it was like what, you're, 32. You're pushing 30, 25, 30 bucks an hour to start. Yeah, 32-something 30, an hour starting out, wow. right? Now, of course, you have to pay into your own retirement and your own vacation fund and stuff. So, 
in reality, if you deduct $7 an hour off of that 32 something, it's still, you know, about $25 on $25 take home pay in your pocket as an apprentice. Now, in the Sacramento area, I don't, and I don't know about the Bay Area where I, from there, but in the Sacramento area, as an apprentice, uh, in the union, you, every six months you get a raise. So it's like a buck fifty an hour raise every six months until you get caught up to the journeyman and turn out. So in my book, I don't know of anybody, I don't know if it, on the on non-union side where you know you're going to get a raise every six months unless the economy really sours out. Yeah. That you're going to get a guaranteed raise, right? Now, now what, on if, non, yeah. what, what if they have, let's say you get somebody that goes to one of the trade schools you know, let, let's say they, they go, um, I don't know, there, there used to be a couple, I'm from California, um, there used to be like a couple of these uh, technical colleges you can go to and yeah. learn HVAC, I can't remember the name of them, but um, so let's say they go through uh, an online course, or they go through, they, they, they've put in some, some you know, screen time on learning, does the yeah. union ever... Does the union ever bring them in? Um, do they do they start all the apprentices at the same point, or do they give them any credit for previous experiences and things like that? There are some things that they will do. Like for instance, from in my situation when I got in, I was yeah. given credit for being in the military and going through some schooling and stuff okay. like that. They gave me okay. credit, right? Okay. So they gave me two years of credit for that. Uh, there were there were guys that had went to like Sac City College, I think still offers a refrigeration uh course with hands-on experience right and i think it's a year and a half and it'll give you i think a year's worth of credit or six months worth of credit in the union right uh it also depends like if if a company goes union and 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 all the techs have certain amount of years of experience there's credit given and some of those guys might be brought in as journeymen some of them might be brought as first second or third year apprentices it all depends on the negotiation of what the union has done with that company Right. It, it's, a, it's a case by case right. yeah. situation and the person who's sponsoring those people. Right. They don't yeah. give credit for online because unless those the online certification is like an accredited university that says, yeah, this guy's 26 weeks or whatever. Okay. They will give credit for the military like yeah. the Air Force. The Air Force has a 26 week HVAC a school. It's like one of the longest HVAC schools with the Navy, right? They will give credit for that because they know you're getting your hands dirty for that 26 weeks and you're learning everything about refrigeration. Right. It's, right, it's, right. You know, so yeah, that's but like I said, it's, 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 it's still a, it's still a case by case basis. Right. Now, do you, what do you think? Um, it, do you think it's better to work for a bigger shop? Like when you're first getting started, like, is it better to work for a bigger shop, a medium-sized shop, and that, like, I guess a uh, small shop? Small shop, I'm saying, might have you know, ten trucks or less. Medium-sized shop, maybe have 25, 30, 40. Uh, a big shop would have you know, 50, 60 trucks or more. Um, is it better for an apprentice to start? You think, in your opinion, with a smaller shop, medium shop, big shop? I would start with a medium to bigger shop. And here's the reason why, because when an apprentice is put into a school, right, by the company, they're bound with an agreement in the school. The company and the school have an agreement to keep that 
uh, apprentice employed. Okay. Right. So there's a certain amount of pressure uh, equally involved with making sure that the apprentice gets to school. The company has to make sure that they get off at a certain time twice a week to get to school with Tuesdays and Thursdays. And equally that the, that the, the dues and everything else are paid by the company. Right. So there's gotta be a fair amount of work for that, that apprentice to be employed full time mm-hmm. in order to be going to school. Right. So there's like equal amounts. If you have a small shop and they can't bid on a whole lot of work, uh, that it's going to be tough to keep that yeah. apprentice employed, yeah. right? So that's that's why a you know, medium to large shop is a lot better than a small shop that, that might be struggling. Like, you know, I only have five trucks or six trucks, and the guys here are all the time busy and he can't get off and go to school, or they're, they're struggling to get work and the guy's not getting his hours, right? Because you got to have a certain amount of work hours per month to qualify, right? To, get, right. to go on to the next year and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. You know? Cool. Well, gosh, Ernie, we've been talking for almost an hour now, man. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, before we wrap things up, so what um, what what parting words would you give to somebody either, like you mentioned earlier, who has some college experience and has come to the conclusion that, you know, college isn't their thing or maybe um, a high school senior or parents of a high school senior that are, you know, trying to guide their son or daughter on next steps after high school. What what would you what parting words would you give these individuals that are that are kind of at a crossroads about their career choices and things? Well, don't don't be afraid to go down and take the entrance exam to these apprenticeship courses, right? Electrical, mechanical, carpentry. Whatever is big in your area, right? Definitely electrical and mechanical and plumbing and sheet metal. They're always looking for people, including steel workers, right? They're always looking for people and they pay good, right? The tests are simple. Math and English. That's all they're looking for. The math is algebra, simple algebra, nothing major, right? And if you don't do well, they'll let you take the test 100 times until you pass. Mm-hmm. There's no real disqualification. Mm-hmm. Uh if the kids are kind of hemming and hawing or don't know what to do, talk to them about the military. It's like sometimes the military will let you test on the ASVAB to see where you are strong in. It's a free test. The ASVAB is a free test. They used to do it in high school. They don't do it anymore. Mm. Have them look into it. You don't have to sign on the bottom line if you don't want to go in the military. You can walk away. There is no charge to walk away. There's no talk, harm in looking into what the military has because you can sign a three-year contract get your stuff done, get all the training, get all the education out of the military, and then go to a trade school that way. Yeah, mm-hmm. you have a lot of experience, you have all your training, you get done with this great trade school in a shorter period of time and get a good pay at the same time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have a daughter that did that. She didn't know what the, she would do. She was going left, right, or straight, up, or straight down. I talked her into the Navy. Now she's on a destroyer. She did Navy electronics warfare package. She's loving it. Yeah, she's really uh, she's not really doing her job yet, but, you know, she's she's experiencing the discipline and the structure of the military. Yeah. And she's grown up a lot by yeah. doing that. Yeah. One, one of the things about, you know, being in skilled trades is a lot of and, and it's starting to get talked about more and more now where 
you know, you go through college and you're going to college and, and you get the college experience, you know, air quotes, you know, you, you get a chance to, yeah. get, you know, a lot of, a lot of these kids are, um, they get out uh, of the parents' home for first time a lot of times. Yep. That's exactly and, it. And, and, you know, they're doing their, their coursework and, and a lot of them will work uh, jobs while they're going to college, but it's typically not, you know, it's retail, it's, you know, working at the coffee shop and, you know, just enough money, you know, get some spending money or maybe sub subsidize some of their school expenses, but they're not working in whatever it is. If they're computer science, it's pretty rare that they're going to be working in computer science until they get further along in their degree process. And yeah. as a parallel, though, you know, you get into a skilled trade, um, especially union, you know, you get paid immediately and you're working in, in exactly, or well, you're, you're working in the same industry that you're getting taught in yep. and, um, and you're getting paid really well. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. I knew, I knew a guy uh, when I was doing one of the chiller plant change outs that, that I was working on just recently, a couple of years ago, he had two degrees, two college degrees, couldn't <laughs> find a job. Right. He goes into the mechanical trade, HVAC side of it, right? On the plumbers and pipe fitter side. He was loving it. He was loving it. He was love. He's like, he should have done it. He's 35 years old. He should have done it when he was 25, he told me. He's yeah. like, yeah. Uh, and he, he didn't think he would like it so much, turning wrenches, learning about different systems, pulling yeah. out prints, looking where things should go and stuff like that. Yeah. Because he, he had been talked out of the trades by his parents and other families and all right. this other stuff. And, and you kind of, you're like, you were talked out of it? He says, yeah. Everybody thought I'd be better off going to college. And, uh, and he had a, a fair amount of college debt. And you kind of you kind of think about that for a minute. It's like, just try it. There's nothing wrong with trying these things and see if you like it. And that's like what I'm going through right now with my future uh, son-in-law. It's like, he doesn't like college. And he's starting to do other things to see if he likes what he's doing. He wrenches on his car all the time. He loves his car. He loves wrenching on his car. So the first thing I'm thinking, I was like, this guy needs to be in the trades. Yeah. And I mean, kind of, I mean, kind of working on my daughter, like, Hey, you know, let me, let me see if I can get him in the union. Right. You know, I think he'll like it because if you get him into the service side of it, service side of HVAC can be very interesting and challenging to him enough that he will do this for the 20, next 25 years of his life and never regret it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I know I don't regret it. It's, yeah. I've seen some crazy stuff. I've done some crazy stuff. I've done some interesting stuff and I've done, the whole gamut. I've done controls. I've done major equipment change out like I'm doing right now. I get the energy updates and talking to the energy manufacturers. In fact, I was just on a big, a big conference call with the corporate side of NG, North of Grumman. And they are just now starting to do energy service agreements, which has been around for 20 years. Right. Yeah. And I'm like thinking, well, you guys are so far behind white ball. Like you, <laughs> like you guys are light years behind. And, and, and I'm thinking to myself, like, we should be doing this all the time because there's no capital outlay. You sign yeah. an agreement with a third party. They put all the money up front. And you get all this new equipment and it pays for itself over time. Yeah. Right. It's like this is a no brainer. And yeah. Northrop Grumman has a lot of sites that are very old and need a lot of updates. So that is it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I very much look forward to continuing to connect with you. Please don't hesitate to send me messages on LinkedIn. I'm on there all the time. Or you can reach out to me uh, on my email. I'm at mking at processchilleracademy.com. And until next week, 
uh, when I give you the next installment. I uh, wish you a great week, and I will connect up with you again soon. Take care now. Bye-bye.